0: And now please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 10, we'll be starting in verse 17 to the end of that chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting in verse 17. After Saul has been anointed, we are now seeing the proclamation or the public reception of Saul as king, 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought out the tribes of Israel near, all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribes of Benjamin were taken by lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrates were taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took from him there, and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. We love kingship stories, like the story of King Arthur. He was selected by the Lady of the Lake and given Excalibur as the sign and seal of his kingship. It's a wonderful story. Uh, and all of the stories of King Arthur are quite wonderful. And yet, Monty Python asks the practical questions about this kingship. What would happen if someone was selected as king like this? I might summarize Monty Python's response to explain what people might say to this young King Arthur. Why are you our king? I didn't vote for you. And A woman giving swords out of a pond is no basis for a system of government. Even if such a selection were clear at the time, these kings would have no followers, even if they undoubtedly became king. It's a a wonderful story, but hard in what might have actually happened in practicality. And I'm sure a great struggle would ensue after King Arthur became king. But we may not think of King Arthur and wonder at what would happen were King Arthur's tales to be actually historically true. We have a historical example of such a story here, that is a rags-to-riches story, a pauper-to-prince story in Saul of Benjamin. He was not looking for kingship, in fact, he was looking for his father's donkeys, and he he was found by God to be king. After his anointing, he went back into obscurity for a little while to his father's house, as we just saw in 1 Samuel 10, verses 1 through 16 last time. Now we pick up the story again with the strange declaration of kingship so foreign to our systems of government. Saul may already be anointed by Samuel as king, but he is not publicly declared or recognized as king by the ruling judge, nor recognized by the people that he is to rule, both of which are quite necessary. This process, of course, starts in verse 17, where Samuel calls all of Israel together at Mizpah for the public selection, declaration, and presentation of the king to Israel, the king that they desired and asked for in 1 Samuel 8. Before selecting the king, the ruling judge, that is the the ruler over Israel in the the tribal confederacy that they have at this point, the ruling judge Samuel, takes this last opportunity as Israel's earthly ruler to admonish Israel for their sinful desire for a king like all the nations. As he has said before, he says in verses 18 through 19, as God speaks through him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Samuel reminds Israel that their preference in a king as one of mere gifts and not graces, one that merely is physically impressive or impressive in a leadership manner, but does not have the heart of God. This request will be honored by God to prove to them their own foolishness in this type of selection. In asking for a king, Israel has, verse 19, rejected God. Yet for all this, God still calls Israel to get their just deserts and calls them to come into their several tribes and house divisions for our first section, the public arrival of the king, as we start in verses 20 through 25. The public arrival of the king is just as unique as any of the old tales. The king was selected by chance, complete another chance, some might say. Now, of course, we know this is not the case. We know impersonal chance is a lie. The lot may fall in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord, so says Proverbs. We know this. So that when the lot fell and selected Benjamin, when the lot fell and selected the Matrites, and then Kish, and then Saul, we do not say, what a coincidence, the same person that was anointed. We don't say these things. We know the hand of God is at work. We are not surprised, nor was Israel surprised, at the lot. The lot had been used by God in Israel's kingship for many decisions when God had called for it as he had here for Samuel to do. There is no such thing as impersonal chance. Chaos does not exist. The sovereign God, in fact, exists. Yet, there is an even greater wrinkle to this story than merely the casting of lots to bring Saul into the public eye. Saul may be publicly selected, a random man to everyone around except for Samuel. However, he's not yet publicly arrived He's hiding among the baggage, the suitcases of the thousands of people who had traveled there. Now, with this strange event, it could be without doubt that Saul was the man of God's selection. That is, the king had arrived. He had anointed him, that is Saul. Saul had been anointed by Samuel. And now God had selected him by lot, and when not found... God had directed Israel to his exact location when they asked whether this Saul of Kish was indeed to be their king. There is now no doubt that this man is selected by God, and none of this could have happened by impersonal chance. Saul had done none of this so that he could not be suspected of trying to create the kingship or, or using Samuel to become king. He could have done none of this. Choosing the king in this manner showed that this appointment was by God, putting it without doubt. But let us pause and examine this king that was found among the baggage that God selected once more through Israel's eyes. He's a king, and yet he's hiding. Saul knows what's going to happen. He's already been anointed by Samuel before this event. He knows he will be selected, yet he runs from it. Israel, as we will see, does not know what to make of this event. Samuel's love for Saul, however, even among the confusion of Israel, comes out in his speech in favor of Saul's kingship here. He commends Saul to Israel and desires everyone to follow him as the Lord's anointed, saying in verse 24, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Still for all Samuel's support of Saul, his support of Saul does not mean that he trusts him. As we see the public bridling of the king in verse 25. Verse 25, Samuel tells all of Israel what the king is to do and writes a book which limits Israelite kings. Samuel, this is verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. He said this to all the people. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. This book is no longer with us, as many books in the Old Testament, unfortunately, are not with us. However, it's fascinating to see that in the Old Testament, government was bridling. That is, the government at this time bridled the king. Saul could not legally or legitimately be a tyrant, This is part of the wisdom of the Constitution of the United States. By no means an infallible document, but I simply say it follows the wisdom of Scripture here that there ought to be no tyrants, for God does not want any human tyrants. Israelite kings were bridled and were called to be bridled by their own people who heard the duties and rights of their king themselves with their own ears. Although Saul's kingship may have been doomed as the selection of the people's prejudice and not of God's preference and wisdom, God does not leave this king without help. As we might expect, the hearts of the Israelite people are reeling from such a a way of selection from a man among the baggage. We can hear them say in verses 26 and 27, in fact, what, our king was selected by lot and he was hiding in the baggage? What's more, one day they didn't have a king, And then the next day, they had a king. One ceremony later, reactions must have been stark in Israel. Although in verse 24, we see all of Israel rightly call out, Long live the king. Often, what happens after the meeting reveals the heart far more. The mouth often hides the heart. There were really only two reactions that we find in verses 26 through 27 to such an abrupt kingship ...to a young baggage Benjaminite. First, those whose hearts were affected to love Saul and to follow after him. And second, those whose hearts grumbled and brought him no present. That is, brought him no honor. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. This is verse 26. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present... But he, that is Saul, held his peace. Which is bringing us to our last section, the two reactions to the king. Verses 26 and 27. The first reaction to such an unusual selection of a king, and a very unusual selection of the king, was that some men freely followed after him. With him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. God touched the hearts of some men to freely follow Saul, God gave Saul loyal, courageous men. This was a sign of God's support of Israelite kingship. Saul could not blame the downfall of his kingdom upon God. God had given him every advantage and even gave him a band of soldiers whom he had not mustered nor inspired by speech as a king might do. Instead of giving a kingdom to a boy without any support, God gave Saul support thereby answering Monty Python in some ways. It's interesting that God did not do this with Jesus Christ, I might say. Certainly, there were many who followed Jesus, but at his death, he was utterly forsaken. Jesus Christ did not bring in the kingdom with any help from loyal followers. Jesus Christ brought in the kingdom all on his own. But beyond this support that Saul had, we see God changed the hearts of these men to follow Saul. So, in our own day with the eternal king, God changes hearts to follow the king. It is not reasoning or the force of personality or awe of the person that draws people to Christ. No, God touches hearts, and they follow King Jesus. It's just as God touched the hearts of these Israelites that they would follow King Saul. It was not out of some desire to be politically favored, nor out of fear of death that these followed them. The text tells us that he touched them in their very heart. Just as these subjects followed Saul with a willing heart, so Christians follow Christ with a willing heart wherever he goes. Whether that be as Saul into a quaint house. In the middle of nowhere, Benjamin, to his father's house where he lived. Saul did not even have a house of his own, and these followed him. They followed him as we ought to follow our Lord and Savior wherever he brings us, whether that be to the lion's den or we follow into what seems like obscurity. We follow as free men, touch to the heart to follow our king. And notice that none of these men are named in this text. They follow Saul and are loyal to him, going wherever he goes, whether it be to this obscure place or otherwise. Let us follow our king in a similar manner. Let us follow him with our whole heart, not swerving to the right or to the left. Let us not be disappointed when he brings us into what seems like obscurity, but follow after him as a loyal servant of this king selected by God. Let us serve even in the small things. Our helping of our brothers and sisters in our chores, not reserving for ourselves glory, but being content to not be called by the name of history, but called by the name of our king. As these loyal servants had been, he will call us by name whose hearts he has touched. Let us be faithful and content that God calls us by name. Even if we may not be recorded in the annals of human history but others had not been touched by the heart in the heart by God and reacted poorly to this public de- declaration of kingship which is the second reaction we see in our text in verse 27 they would say how can this man save us this should give us pause these words are pregnant with meaning israel wanted a king because israel wanted a savior First, Israel, a king, is by definition a savior as well, and we find that in this text. How can this man save us? As God even tells them in this this passage of ours, he is their king, and how did he prove this? He proved it by saving them out of Egyptian hands. We know Israel assumed their kings were saviors from the grumblings of these dissatisfied Israelites who said, how can this man save us? They consider the king to be a messianic worker for salvation. The point is this, the messianic anticipation of salvation by a king over Israel is embedded within the assumptions of even the the most grumbling of Jews of the ancient times and even at the very outset of the kingship itself. We ought to look and see in the Israelite breast at every age a deeply embedded hope for a savior. Just as we see in these men in 1 Samuel 10, Israel wanted a king because Israel wanted a savior. And I must make this clear with reference to Saul. It's not Saul himself that points us forward to Christ as savior. No, Saul was not a true savior to Israel, as we will find as we go along in our story. However, he was used, as we will find as well in 1 Samuel 11, by God for salvation. Salvation from the people around who were oppressing them. However, Saul himself was not the king of God's choice, the king after God's own heart. It's Saul's office of kingship, not Saul himself, that looks forward to Christ, that is, the king is a savior. Saul was meant to be a savior. And although he did not get beyond saving them from some of their enemies, he saved them from almost none of their idolatry, which is the heart of our salvation in Christ and even the heart of David's kingship. This points us to the real point of this passage. There are only really two reactions to the king. Either there is love from the heart, or there is grumbling and dishonor. There is no middle ground in this text. We ought not to think that we could ever be in a middle ground. We sin far more if we say, long live the king, and yet grumble against God's king, Jesus. There is no middle ground. Jesus was, of all kings, the most obscurely chosen, so that men might grumble against him. Instead of hiding from kingship, Jesus did not hide, but he was born obscurely in a cattle stall with almost only the angels rejoicing at his coming. Although the Magi gave him gifts, we Christians are unable to give him gifts. He is the owner of of the cattle on a thousand hills. Instead, Jesus gave us gifts. As these grumblers thought of Saul, so many think of Jesus, how can this man save us? Isn't this fellow Jesus the son of Joseph? We know his father, we know his mother. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? These are the words of his compatriots in John 6 42. Do we despise Jesus, the king, based upon our own prejudices, as these people had? How can this king save me from my depression? How can this king save me from my rebellious heart? How can this man save my marriage? How can this man save me from my addiction? Is God's selection for kingship, or his methods in kingship, too meager for our liking? Are you able to say, long live the king, with your mouth, but then grumble afterwards with your life? Perhaps it disturbs you that Christ has died and risen again, and he is not among us bodily. Instead, Christ has gone back to his father's house, much like Saul does here, and let people around the world grumble upon him and say, How can this man save us as we loyally follow him, follow him as Christians? Christ is still despised as God's appointed Savior King in this our world. But what has God said? It does not matter what mere men say. Even in this text, God selected without doubt Saul, and God has said without doubt that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord, so says Romans 1. God himself has declared that Jesus Christ is king. What matters that some other people grumble? Let God be true, though everyone were called, therefore, a liar by saying so. Let us follow the selection of God, however lowly his entrance may seem to some, however maligned by others. When he came in a cattle stall, there was no public reception of him as there may have been in Saul's day. But see him now seated at the right hand, The Father. Why was he come in such a strange, odd manner just as Saul came? Because, with the odd selection of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, we have the proof that this is the public king of God's choosing and God's prophesying. We know that there can be no other way. We know that this is certainly the Messiah. As he has prophesied, this odd manner was God's appointed means that we might be certain as those in Saul's day were certain of his kingship. It does not suit to say of Christ, I might add, long live the king. Instead, we will say with the angels, as we heard this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let us rejoice in our king and our savior, Jesus Christ. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in your kingship. We rejoice that you were were come for our salvation. You were selected for our salvation in that, Lord. You came, and you came in this obscure manner according to the world, who grumble and say, how can this man save us? Lord, although you are in your Father's house now, you will come again. Lord, you have worked this salvation, and you have worked it in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And we recognize that there is no doubt that you are King. May we, we pray, be like those men who are touched in the heart to follow after you, even into obscure places, even into places that seem dishonorable to others. We ask, Lord, that we would do what is right, that we, from our, the depths of our hearts, would be loyal to you, that you would, we would bring to you our gifts and our sacrifices of praise. Lord, our King, we thank you that you came, that you were incarnate, that you now are indeed God and man forevermore, that we will see you as you are, and we will glorify you for all eternity as our very heart desires. We love you, Lord, and praise you, and ask all this and pray all this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.